Hey, I'm Pastor Joel, and I just want to say thank you for downloading or streaming this message today. My prayer for you is that you're blessed by the content that you hear. As a church, our desire is to make disciples of Jesus, and we do that by helping people to trust and follow Him in every aspect of their daily life. So if this is something that blesses you, we just hope that you'll feel free to share this with others so that they might be encouraged and challenged by it as well. Christmas GFC. We are so glad you're with us today. And uh, now that we are only five days away from celebrating Christmas, we're just so thankful that we have the opportunity to gather, albeit not in the way we would want to. Uh, this year has definitely not been ideal, and we're not facing ideal situations right now. But nonetheless, we want to welcome you in as we continue our COVID Christmas, I guess. Uh, one of my friends recently told me he was going to call the Christmas services at their church a very COVID Christmas, Charlie Brown. And so uh, I don't know what you're experiencing, but nonetheless, I think what we're going through in these days can actually help us to, uh, to really engage better with the first Christmas. That wasn't an ideal situation either. I don't know if you read the gospel stories, we tend to see Christmas as just being this perfect situation with everybody gathered with their families around nice tables and sharing gifts and having a nice meal and all these different things. But the reality of the first Christmas was that it was far less than an ideal situation. Mary and Joseph weren't in a nice sterile hospital room where there was nurses and doctors attending to them when Jesus was born. Uh, Mary didn't have an epidural, ladies, hello, and uh, there was a lot probably going on with some noise happening in that manger scene area uh, that we talk about at Christmas. We sing the song, Silent Night. I just have a feeling it was anything but silent when Mary was giving birth to Jesus. And then when she did give birth, she had nothing to wrap him in but swaddling cloths. These were blankets or cloth pieces that were used to wrap up newborn lambs, not something we would typically think about wrapping our children in when they're born into this world. Uh, and then to lay him down to sleep, they had to place him in a manger with straw in it. This was a trough that was meant to feed animals, and that's where Jesus was laid. And so when we think about this Christmas season, when we think about all we're going through in the 21st century, part of my thought is maybe what we're experiencing and that this is less than ideal and it's not what we would hope for and it's not what we anticipate or expect being Christmas. Maybe what it does is it brings us back in our hearts and in our minds to the first Christmas. And even though it's less than ideal, it's Christmas nonetheless. And so we're thankful for that and glad that you're celebrating with us. If you've been walking with us through this teaching series, we're talking about whispers of Christmas. And what we've been doing over the last three weeks is taking a look at things that, that God said in the Old Testament, which would eventually, after thousands of years, be fulfilled and come true in the New Testament with the birth of Jesus. And so there were things that God spoke in the Old Testament that 
finally came true. They were just whispers. They didn't have a, a full understanding of what God was saying at the time, and, and they didn't make perfect sense when God said them in the situations that he said them into. But by the time we get to Jesus in the New Testament, these whispers from the Old Testament start to make sense. And in Jesus all of them are fulfilled. And so we've been walking through that. And what we've been doing is looking at a lot of scripture from both the Old and the New Testament. Now, I know that looking around at a lot of scripture and reading a lot of scripture on a Sunday morning like this might seem tedious. It might get a little bit old at times. But I want you to know that we're doing this by design. We're doing this for a couple of reasons. Number one, we want to see the activity of God has been consistent from the very beginning of time. That he had planned this Christmas season we're celebrating now from the very moment that he created this world. And all of the things that we're experiencing are in God's sovereign control. Number two, we're looking at a lot of scripture in the Old and the New Testament. We're reading a lot on Sunday mornings like this right now. And we're seeing a lot of text come up on your screens. And we're going through a lot of these passages. Because as Christians, we need to know our Bibles. We need to know what God's written to us. We need to know what's been said, and we need to know how to think about these things. And unfortunately, too many Christians only read bits and pieces and snippets here and there of Scripture. And most of the time, we stick to the New Testament. Because let's be honest, the New Testament's a lot easier for us to get and understand than the Old Testament is. But in this context, what we're doing in this series is we're intentionally looking at a lot of Scripture. We're reading a lot of even difficult things things sometimes because we want you as Christians to know what God has said, to know how this works out in our lives. And so when we've done this, the first few things we've looked at, the first two whispers of Christmas so far, the, the first thing we saw in the first week of this series was that there was a whisper of hope. Adam and Eve were God's first created people and he walked with them in the garden. He created them in perfection and he gave them one rule, which they broke. And upon breaking that rule, sin entered into the world. And sin caused a separation from them physically from God, but it also brought about death into our world. Spiritual death was the first thing that occurred, and physical death would be the second. But for Adam and Eve, God came and he whispered to them a reality that he had in mind, that the serpent who had deceived them would one day be defeated. And he promised them, he said, Eve, by your seed... There will be one who comes who crushes the head of the serpent. And so from the very beginning, we see this whisper of hope. There's going to be one who's going to come, and this serpent who deceived you will have his head crushed. And we know that was fulfilled in Jesus at the cross. He broke Satan. He crushed Satan's head at the cross. Then our second whisper of Christmas that we talked about last week was a whisper of blessing. And then we looked at the story of Abraham and we saw that God had chosen this man to leave his family, to leave his people, to leave his home nation, and to go on a journey with him. God wasn't even going to tell him where. He just said, come follow me and go where I tell you. And when they got there to the land of Canaan, God said, this is going to be your land. And I'm going to make you, Abraham, into a great nation. And then through you, the whole world is going to be blessed. And so we see this whisper of blessing. What did it mean that the whole world would be blessed? When we got to the New Testament, we saw that in Jesus, he was the fulfillment of that. That he's the Messiah that had come for the whole world, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles as well. That every nation, all of the world will be blessed 
by Jesus because through him we have access to God. When we accept him and receive him as our savior, our lives are changed forever and we're blessed by him. So that brings us to the next whisper of Christmas and to narrow down this path of the promised blessing even more. We find in Genesis that God takes Abraham's grandson, Jacob, and he changes his name to Israel. And then he says to Israel, I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to reaffirm, reiterate the promise that I made to your grandfather, Abraham. And through you, the whole world is going to be blessed. Then we find that as we travel along with Israel and his family line, we get to Genesis chapter 49. Israel has had 12 men, 12 boy children, uh, the 12 tribes of Israel. And now he gets to the end of his life and he calls his family together and he's going to give them his personal blessing to his children. This is something that fathers would do in their culture before they died. They would pass along a blessing to their kids. And normally the lion's share of the blessing, the inheritance would go to the first child. But in Israel's case, he does give a blessing to his first son, but it's not the inheritance. He doesn't make him the ruler of the family. He doesn't give it to the second son either. He gets to the third son. And in Genesis chapter 49, we read and we see the third whisper of Christmas, the third statement that's going to come from the Old Testament to point toward the Messiah in the New Testament. So if you have your Bibles, look on the screen with me or turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 49. And we're going to look at verses 8 through 10. This is where Israel speaks to his son, Judah. And he says this, verse eight, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion who crouches and lies down, like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he to whom it belongs shall come and the obedience of the nations will be his. And so if you like to take notes and if you want to write something down or if you're following along in our app today, here's the very first thing that I would tell you. The third whisper of Christmas is seen here and it's a whisper of royalty, that he tells Judah, you are going to become a royal line. He calls him the lion or the lion's cub. And so we know of the nation, the tribe of Judah as the, the tribe of the lion. And what we see here is he promises him that from you, a ruler's staff will come. The ruler's staff was important because it was a scepter. It was something that showed power. It showed distinguishment. It showed that he was the king. And he says, in your family, this scepter will always belong. And so in this passage, we find out that a ruler will come from Judah's family line. The Messiah, when he comes, will be a king. And so we're seeing this whisper of royalty. It hadn't happened yet, but it was going to be fulfilled. And so the scepter is this symbol of power. And Judah is told that the scepter will always belong to his family until it finds a resting place with the one to whom it belongs. And all nations will bow to that one. And so Israel in this moment is speaking toward in the future 
way into the future. And he's looking at Judah and he says, your family lineage is going to be a lineage of kings and rulers. And the scepter will not leave your hand until it comes to the one. There's one. And we think back to that seed of woman that was talked about. There's going to be one, a Messiah who's going to come. And he says, when the scepter falls to him in your lineage, then it will stay with him forever. There is one ruler who's coming and he'll rule over everything for all time. So we see God's promise, and here's what we've narrowed this down to. With Abraham, he was promised a nation. Then we came to Israel again, this promise of a nation. And then there's a tribe. And with Judah, we now know that the Messiah is going to come through his tribe, the tribe of Judah. And then today, what we're going to see is narrowing this down even more. God picks a family out of the tribe of Judah to bring the promised messianic blessing. So here's what I want us to look at together as we go down through this. In the book of 1 Samuel, God allows the nation of Israel to have a king. It wasn't the ideal situation. Again, as we talk about ideals around this time of year, the people rebelled against God. They looked at all the other nations around them and they said, all the nations have a king except for us. We have a God who rules over us and God is our king, but we want to be like everyone else. We want a king. And so God acquiesces to their request and he says to Samuel, give them a king. And so Samuel does. And the first person anointed is a guy named Saul. Saul rebels against God. He doesn't do the things that God would desire. So God tells him, your family line isn't going to pass on down to your son to be king. I'm going to choose a new king. And from this king is going to come the blessing of God. So the second king of Israel is David. King David, a shepherd boy who God raises up to be king of the nation. And so here's what we see. When we look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, God is talking to David. This is coming near the end of his life, near the end of his rule and reign, uh, closer to the end, I guess, rather. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16, God makes a covenant with David. I want you to read this along with me. 2 Samuel chapter 7, starting verse 12. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men and floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me your throne will be established forever. And so God tells David that he will bring the Messiah of the world through the family of David. He's promised that his house and his kingdom are going to endure forever. There'll be no end to the blessing of the family of David's line. And so when we see this, we figure out something as we continue to read scripture. Although David's promise that the kingdom will never fall from your family, we find that David's children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and the royal lineage passed down from him doesn't always do what God says. They don't always follow the ways of God. In fact, some of them are incredibly wicked and evil. And so we see when we get down into Jeremiah that this problem occurs because the kings who followed David were wicked and evil a lot of the time. And we get to this place in the story 
near Jeremiah. And as we as a church, before the Christmas season, we were studying the book of Daniel. And we saw that the people of Israel were taken into Babylonian captivity. The last king of Israel in those days was a guy named Jehoiachin. And I want you to hear what Jeremiah prophesies about him. He's a king in the lineage of David, but he's going to be the last one to truly rule over Israel before the Babylonian exile. So look at Jeremiah chapter 22, verses 24 through 27. Then we're going to skip to verse 30. And here's what Jeremiah says to Jehoiachin from God. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, even if you, Jehoiachin, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, I would still pull you off. I will deliver you into the hands of those who want to kill you, those you fear, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon and the Babylonians. I will hurl you and your mother who gave birth to you into another country where neither of you was born and there both will die. You will never come back to the land you long to return to. Now skip down to verse 30. This is what the Lord says. Record this man as if childless, a man who will not prosper in his lifetime, for none of his offspring will prosper. None will sit on the throne of David or rule anymore in Judah. And so in this prophecy, God puts an end to the ruling line of King David for a period of time at least. And so we see this problem and we go, this seems like such a huge issue. How in the world is God going to give David an eternal throne and can give him a kingdom that's going to last forever if he's told his lineage, this is where it ends? Because of your sin, there's no more rulers that are going to come from your line. Well, when we think back to what was prophesied in Genesis chapter 49, and we hear that whisper of Christmas that Judah was spoken about, the scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he to whom it belongs shall come and the obedience of the nations shall then be his. The eternal ruler from David's line is the Messiah, the one who will hold the scepter of power forever. And so God said David would have an eternal throne and Jehoiachin would never have someone on the throne. So how is God going to reconcile that? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because as we go through scripture, we see the answer to it. We see that there are things that God does to reconcile these events. I want you to remember the first whisper of Christmas, the whisper to, the, uh, to Adam and Eve in the garden that God spoke to Eve and he said, from the seed of the woman, one will come who will crush the head of the serpent. Now, biologically, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Women do not carry seed. Women carry eggs. This is not the reproductive way. And so what did God mean when he said that he was going to bring the Messiah through the seed of the woman? Let's take a look at the story of Jesus' birth, and let's see how God brings this story together. Because we're going to find through Joseph and Mary, two lineages that connect back to David but through one, it's going to pass through the non-kingly line. So I want you to see this. This is where we get into a little bit of crazy because I don't know how much you love reading genealogies as you get to those in scripture, but we're going to look at one today. We're going to actually look at two. But Matthew chapter one, and let's read the first 17 verses together. This is the genealogy that follows Joseph's family line. So here's what I want you to see in the first verse. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. 
the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, I want you to notice, if you will, just those first two names. God is connecting the Messiah to David the king and to Abraham, the one who began the nation. And so here's verse two. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amenadab. Amenadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. And Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Ammon. Ammon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. Jeconiah and Jehoiachin are the same person. They just use a different name in the Hebrew and the Greek. After the exile, verse 12, after the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah or Jehoiachin was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abahud. Abahud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azar, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Elihud. Elihud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Methon. Methon, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of, jo of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David and 14 from David to the exile to Babylon and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Now, here's what I hope you notice in that family line that we traced with Joseph. Joseph is a direct descendant of David, the king. And Joseph is a direct descendant of the kingly line of David, Jehoiachin and Shealtiel and their family that proceeded even after the exile. They just no longer sat on the throne of Israel, but they were a direct descendant of David through that line. The one that God said would not have a descendant on the throne. So the Messiah can't come through Joseph's bloodline, which is not a problem because the Messiah wasn't the biological child of Joseph. If you remember the story, there are things that get a little bit crazy because the Messiah is supposed to be the seed of woman. And when we come to the story of Mary and Joseph, Mary has an angel that shows up to speak to her in Luke chapter one. And the angel tells her, you're going to be the mother of the Messiah, Mary. And Mary asks a question, how can this be? I am a virgin. Right? And so she says, how am I going to be the mother of the Messiah, the one that God has promised, when I've never been with a man? And the angel says, Mary, there's going to be the Spirit of God that will come upon you. And through the power of the Spirit of God, you will become the mother of the Messiah. And so what we're going to find in this story is that when we get to Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 3, we find another genealogy. 
This one more than likely traces the family line of Mary. So we've seen the family line of Joseph. Now we see the family line of Mary. And here's what we're going to find. I'm not going to read the entire genealogy to you this time, but I want to read just the part that goes from Abraham to David and his descendants. And I want to see if we notice a change in this. So here's what we find in Mary's family line. There was Abraham, the father of Isaac, the father of Jacob, the father of Judah, the father of Perez, the father of Hezron, the father of Ram, the father of Amminadab, the father of Nashon, the father of Salmon, the father of Boaz, the father of Obed, the father of Jesse, the father of David, the father of Nathan, and the father of Messiah. And so if you notice the difference, just in that brief reading of that family line, from David, it goes to Solomon, who was king after David and his family line, the royal lineage. But with Mary, after her connection to David, it went to his son, Nathan. Nathan was not in the line of the kings. And yet Mary is connected to him through genetic lineage. This is not the royal lineage, but it's the genetic lineage. And so we find a connection back to King David for Mary and for the Messiah to be born out of her line. And so what we find when we come to Luke chapter one is that the Messiah is going to carry on the royal bloodline of David, not through the broken line of Jehoiachin, but through David's son, Nathan, and then through Mary. So when Jesus is born, Mary has a direct connection back to David, whom God had told you will never fail to have one sitting on your throne. I will establish his kingdom forever. So the whisper of royalty now comes to Jesus. So let's look at another passage of scripture together. Luke chapter one, verse 26. And this is the story of the angel coming to speak to Mary. Start with me in verse 28. The angel went to Mary and said to her, greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. And Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and you will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary? Asked the angel, since I am a virgin. And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Now, I want to start drawing this to a close this morning by asking another question. See, it's one thing for us as we read through Scripture to make the claim that Jesus is the son of God, that Jesus is the royal line of David, and that Jesus is king of the whole world and the whole universe. We can make that claim, and a lot of people might say, well, you're just making that claim. You're tying together pieces in scripture. You're making these loose ends fit together. But can we genuinely say that when Jesus was born and in his lifetime, that people considered him to be king? So I want us to look again at one more passage of scripture together. One final passage in Matthew chapter two. This is approximately two years after Jesus's birth. And this is the story of the Magi showing up 
to find Jesus. So if you will, read along with me and let's see the connection here of whether or not people considered Jesus to be the king in his lifetime. Here's what we find. Matthew chapter two, verse one. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and they asked, where is the one who has been born the king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and we've come to worship him. By the way, if I can just stop for one second, this week in our night sky, there's something pretty phenomenal taking place. Uh, if you look out, we had an opportunity to see this from my parents' house while we were with them for our Christmas celebration. But two planets are converging on one another, Saturn and Jupiter. And they're lined up, they're 0 0.01 degrees separation in the night sky. Now that's still millions of miles away from, from each other touching, but where the way we see them, they're converging and lining up together to form one bright star, the Christmas star is what it's being called. And this only happens every so many years. The next time they'll be this close will be in about 80 years. And the last time that it was this bright and this close was 800 years ago. So it's a pretty phenomenal event. On December 22nd, you can look out and see it, and it will be incredibly bright, and it'll be at its, uh, its apex of its convergence. So check that out. It's pretty cool. But the kings here, the Magi, said, we saw the star of the Messiah in the sky, and we've come to worship him. Here's what he says in verse 3. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had called together all the peoples, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. And after they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose, went, in, uh, went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child and his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And after having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up took the child and his mother during the night and they left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I will call my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. The Magi came from the east to worship the one that they called the king of the Jews. 
And as they did that, their desire was to worship him and to bring him gifts. We know that they presented him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. These fine gifts fit for a king. And so perspective tells us and context tells us and what they say to Herod tells us that there is a belief in them that this one who has been born is the king of the Jews, that he belongs as David's descendant who will reign. Then we have Herod, who never calls Jesus king, but by his actions and by what we see of Herod, he takes the prophecy of where the Messiah will be born and the appearance of the star, the guide of the Magi to Jerusalem, and he connects the dots. He asks his uh, counselors, he says, where is this one who is to be born, the king of the Jews? And they say, in Bethlehem. Where was Jesus born? Bethlehem. And so he starts to connect the dots and put the pieces together. And Herod never calls Jesus king, but he starts to assume and he asks the Magi to come back and tell him where Jesus is so he can also go and worship him. But Herod doesn't have in mind to go and worship the child. Herod immediately sees Jesus as a threat to his kingship. If there's one who has been born the king of the Jews and you're already serving as king over the Jewish people, in the place that Rome has given to you, then you start to wonder and think, is this child going to upend me and my kingdom? And so Herod wants to destroy Jesus. When the Magi don't come back, Herod becomes furious and he goes in a violent rampage, killing all of the children in the area, two years old and younger. We've seen death in our area. We weep and we mourn with people who are hurting because of the brokenness of what we've experienced. Jesus and his family and the families around Jerusalem and Bethlehem and Judea, they knew the same hurt and the same pain because Christmas that we celebrate, this time of year, the first ever Christmas was full of bloodshed. It was full of death. It was full of pain. It was full of hurt. And yet God preserved his Messiah. He had him escape to Egypt so that another prophecy will be fulfilled. That out of Egypt, I'll call my son. God has set up Jesus as the Messiah of the world. He's king and he's come to rule and to reign. Now, I want to close with two thoughts this morning from what we've been looking at. Matthew's gospel, where these genealogies are found, when he says he is the son of David, Matthew calls Jesus the son of David 10 times in his gospel. He's writing primarily to a Jewish audience and he wants to make the connection. This child that's been born is your king. He is the king. He's the son of David. He's the one we've been waiting for. But Jesus didn't fulfill that role like they thought he would. It's part of what ends up getting him to a cross is that they want Jesus to be the king who will overthrow Rome and reestablish the kingdom of Israel and take his seat on the throne in this world in his human form. But Jesus didn't come to do that. Jesus came for a different throne. Jesus came to die so that he could forgive our sins and be given the throne of our hearts. And so Jesus, in his earthly life, never inherited a throne like people wanted him to. He ascended back to heaven 
where he's waiting. But we're told clearly in Scripture, and part of the reason that we look at these Old Testament prophecies about the birth of Jesus is because it gives us hope today that the prophecies that exist for us now that say Jesus will come again, if Jesus came the first time in fulfillment of prophecy, we can believe the existing prophecies that he will come again. So we don't wait as if we have no hope. We wait as people full of hope, full of understanding that Jesus has gone to heaven where he's been crowned king and Lord. And when he returns, his second advent, his second coming will not be as a baby to be placed in a manger and to die on a cross. His second advent will be when he returns as king and Lord. And he will come to get rid of Satan, to get rid of sin, and to bring in his glorious kingdom where he will sit on the throne forever and ever and ever and will rule with him that he will bring his people to his kingdom. So we want to be excited and expecting of his return as we celebrate this Christmas season, looking forward to a better day, looking forward to a time when sin and death and disease are out the window and Jesus comes to rule and to reign in perfection. Here's the second thing that I want us to pay attention to this morning as we close. There were two groups of people that recognized Jesus as king, but they had very different responses to them. The Magi see Jesus as king and they come to worship. They came to bring gifts. They wanted to come before Jesus and bow to him. That's the first way that we should respond. But there's a second response in the story. It's Herod's. Herod sees Jesus as a threat as a threat to his personal kingship, as a threat to his personal reign. And as a result, Herod wants nothing more than to get rid of Jesus. And so that's exactly what he tries to do. And it sends him on a murderous rampage throughout the area. We have a decision then to make as we hear this story today and as we know these pieces and how they come together and we celebrate Christmas. What are you going to do with Jesus? What is your response to Jesus going to be? This baby that came and was placed in a manger and wrapped in cloths and worshiped by the Magi, will you also worship him and acknowledge him as king and Lord? Will you establish him as ruler and Lord of your heart and your life today? Would you let him cleanse you of your sin and be the ruler of the throne of your heart and your life? Or... Will you be like Herod? Will you want to just get rid of Jesus? You're fine with the story, but you don't want anything to do with him in your life. You want to rule. You want to be in charge. You want to have free reign. You want to do whatever you want to do without having to acknowledge Jesus's lordship and kingship of your life. And so you just toss him to the side. You have a decision to make today about what you're going to do with Jesus? Will you worship him and invite him to be savior? Or will you cast him away and you maintain the throne of your life? So I want you to think about that this morning as we close, about what's your response going to be to this Christmas story and this Christmas season. Jesus is the king and he is coming again to rule and to reign over all creation. When he comes, Will he find you waiting for him 
to bow down and worship. Thanks so much for checking out our message today. We hope you are challenged and blessed by it. We want to invite you to come and worship with us in person if you live in the Tri-Cities area. We meet on Sunday mornings at 9 and 10.45 a.m. at One Fellowship Point in Kingsport, Tennessee. You can also get more information about us from our website or our mobile app. Have a great day.